Why do we die? I don't mean heart disease or cancer or stepping in front of a bus. I mean, why do we die? If you were making this up, would you make it up that we die? Think about it. You get born. That's traumatic enough. And then you do the diaper thing. And finally, you start having some fun and they ship you off to school for what? 12, 16, 20, 24 years. And you finally get out and they put you to work. And then 40 years later, finally, finally, you can have some fun. I mean, really, and you die. <laughs> What's going on here? I mean, <clears throat> maybe we're not doing something we should be doing. What if we hung a lot of crystals in the windows? No, wait, we already tried that. It's still working. People are still dying. Maybe we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. Do you realize that over 90% of the people that ever ate food are dead? <laughs> so, no, that's not going to work either. Well, one thing's for sure. If you don't get born, you don't die. And if you get born, well, looks like sooner or later you're going to wind up dead. Of course, this only raises the question, why bother being born? Being born's a very popular thing to do, like everybody I know did it. Birds do it, bees do it. It would appear that Mother Nature sort of has this urge to become, and this becoming results in these births, and then all these creatures that have taken birth eventually wind up dead. So this becoming, what's that about? Well, think about this building. It didn't used to be a building, right? It used to be a bunch of, well, I guess, wood and metal and glass out there in the parking lot area. And then they stuck all the pieces together and it became a building. So becoming seems to have something to do with things sticking together, clinging. If clinging leads to becoming, then becoming can lead to birth, and birth, well, that leads to old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, and all the rest of the dukkha. So clinging. What about clinging? What do you cling to? Like, like you got a pair of socks that are worn out, the soul's gone, you got a hole in the toe. Somebody says, oh, can I have those socks? Are you going to cling to the socks? No, of course not. Yeah, you want the socks here, you can have the socks. You're even going to them dirty. We cling to the good stuff. We cling to the stuff that's desirable. In fact, we cling to the stuff that we crave. If you crave for something and you get it, then you cling to it. And clinging leads to becoming birth, death. All right, what about craving? What do you crave? I don't know, chocolate ice cream, right? And you crave for chocolate ice cream because it's healthy, right? Uh, because it's uh, in a round container. 
Uh, I don't think so. I think you crave the chocolate ice cream because it tastes good, right? It gives you pleasant Vedana. When you eat the ice cream, the experience is pleasant. And because it's pleasant, uh, you ate the whole container, right? The craving got a little out of hand. And, uh, well, clinging, becoming birth, and a tummy ache. That's your dukkha. So, this pleasantness that you experience, where does that come from? You go to the grocery store, and you go to the freezer section, and you see it there in the freezer. Is that the pleasant that you want? Nah. You take it up to the front, and the cashier rings it up, and they want your money. That's not even pleasant, right? And you, you put it in the bag, along with the rest of the groceries. Hopefully, you didn't just go buy ice cream, right? And you take it home, and hopefully, you put away the rest of the groceries before you rip the top off the ice cream. And now it's that brown color. Is that why you wanted it? Is that the pleasant? No, still not happening. You grab a spoon, you stick it in, still not the pleasant. It hits the tongue, pleasant, contact. The pleasant arises because of the contact. Now, there might have been some pleasant before that, but that's anticipation. That's like mental contact. But the real pleasant, the pleasant that causes you to crave it, that's when the ice cream hits the tongue. And that pleasant feeling, if you're not careful, leads to craving and clinging and becoming and birth and death. All right, what about contact? Where does that come from? Well, it seems that you have these senses that you left hanging out in the environment. I mean, you're sitting here in the room and you hear things. You didn't come in here to hear things, but because you left your ears on, sounds come in, the birds, the roof, the dripping, whatever it is. You left your senses in the environment. You leave your senses turned on when you eat. Some of the stuff tastes good. Some of it, well, maybe not quite as good. Though around here, it all tastes pretty good. Um, your eyes are seeing things. You don't want to see something. Well, it's going to be hard to navigate. So it's these senses. That's where the contact comes from. And because of the contacts happening, there's these Vedana. And if they're pleasant, we're craving for it. And if they're unpleasant, we're craving for the absence of it. And all this craving leads to clinging, becoming birth and death. Well, what about the senses? Well, they're part of having a mind and body. A mind and body without any senses would be, well, senseless. You wouldn't last very long. You wouldn't have the capacity to navigate your environment and feed yourself and so forth. They're just really part of having a mind and body. And because you have a functioning mind and body, the senses are functioning, getting contacts, which produces the Vedana, and if you're not careful, it leads to craving, clinging, becoming birth, death. What about mind and body? Well, one thing's for sure, mind and body depends upon consciousness. 
If you have a mind and body with no consciousness, well, it's going to be dead soon. Well, they can keep you alive by force feeding you, but pretty much you've got to have a conscious mind and body for it to work. And a conscious mind and body is going to have senses to get contacts that produce Vedana that, unless you're careful, leads to craving, clinging, becoming birth and death. Uh, what about consciousness? Well, consciousness seems to arise due to the interaction of mind and body. Um, I personally have never run any, into any consciousness that wasn't associated with both a mind and a body. You know, I just don't find those sort of consciousnesses around. Um, so it would appear that mind and body and consciousness are interdependent. Each depends on the other. You remove one and the other falls over as well. So interdependent consciousness in mind and body means that there are senses that are working that receive contacts that produce Vedana that unless you're careful leads to craving, clinging, becoming old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, and all the rest of the dukkha. This is Paticca Samupada, dependent origination. Or at least it's an example of that. This example has 10 nodes, I guess we could call them. This particular one also has 10 links between the nodes. In one of the discourses, Sariputta, who was the Buddha's chief disciple, quotes the Buddha as saying, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. This is really the heart of the Buddha's teaching. So what's going on here? I mean, we got these ten links. What's it about? Well, interestingly enough, there are many different ways in which dependent origination is described in the suttas. Sometimes you find it with ten links, or nine links, or seven links. Perhaps most famously, there are twelve links. The twelve-link version, instead of saying that consciousness is dependent on mind and body, says that consciousness is dependent on sankharas. Sankara is an interesting word. It may be the most important word to understand in all of Pali if you really want to get a deep grasp of the Buddha's teachings. Sankara is something that's made, something that's created, something that's manufactured. And so consciousness is dependent upon Sankara. Now, this is not a contradiction. Consciousness is dependent on mind and body, and consciousness is dependent on Sankara. Some things are dependent upon multiple things. Duh! I mean, the lights being on are dependent on the switch being up, right? But also dependent upon the power lines coming here and the power generating station functioning and sending the power here. So, consciousness basically has to have an object, and the objects are sankharas. And sankhara? Sankharas are dependent upon ignorance, ignoring 
Well, ignoring what? Ignoring the created nature of the world? Ignoring the fact that everything that is created also ceases existing? Usually stated, all that arises also ceases. Nor ignoring the fact that things that are created because of their changeable nature aren't going to give lasting satisfaction. They have a nature of dukkha as well. And ignoring the fact that, well, everything that's created is actually dependent on a whole bunch of other things. This 12-link version of dependent origination is probably the one that's talked about the most. And there's a description in the commentaries explaining exactly what it means. It says dependent origination is depicting three lifetimes. The ignorance and the sankharas, which are thought of as karmic formations, are your previous life. So in your previous life you were ignorant and you acted in certain ways that has led to you having a consciousness and a mind and body in this life which gets has senses which get contacts that if you're not careful leads to craving and clinging. And the clinging, the clinging to want to be, leads to your next life, the becoming and the birth and death of your next life. So a three lifetime explanation of dependent origination. There are two flaws with this description. One, there's zero evidence in the sutta that that's what the Buddha was talking about. Not just little evidence, zero evidence. There is a sutta where it's pretty clear what's given there is a two-lifetime model, but not a three-lifetime model. And that sutta, mm, shall we say that in my opinion, is probably a later composition. It doesn't accurately reflect what the Buddha was teaching with dependent origination. The other flaw in the three-lifetime model Often in the suttas, we find a pattern that goes like this. With the ceasing of ignorance, there's a ceasing of sankharas. With the ceasing of sankharas, there's a ceasing of consciousness. With the ceasing of consciousness, all the way up to, with the ceasing of birth, there's a ceasing of all the old age, sickness, death, and rest of the dukkha. This is the way to get out of dukkha, uproot the ignorance. You need to uproot the ignorance in your previous life. Wait a second, wait a second. This doesn't make any sense at all. You probably don't remember your previous life. And how the heck are you going to go back to your previous life and uproot the ignorance in it? I don't think the Buddha would make such a stupid mistake. I think the commentaries have no clue what the Buddha was talking about. There's a modern explanation of dependent origination that comes from Ajahn Buddhadasa. Ajahn Buddhadasa was one of the great forest monks in Thailand in the last century. And he talks about dependent origination not happening over multiple lifetimes, but happening moment to moment. I'll give you an example. 
let's say you've never had a mango. And you go to the grocery store and you're wandering around the produce section and you come across this bin and it's got a sign saying mangoes. And you're like, oh yeah, mangoes, I heard about them. They're supposed to be good. And you look in and oh, I think I'll buy one. Try it out. And you sort of squeeze and you think, oh, maybe this one's good. And you take it home. And you put away the rest of the groceries, hopefully. And then you start into the mango. Now, when you first attack a mango, of course, you make a big mess, right? But you figure out you got to peel it and you cut off some of it. All right, now you got a piece of peeled mango in your hand. You're conscious. You have a mind and body. It's got senses. Contact. Ooh, Vedana, pleasant Vedana. This is good, right? And you eat the mango and you're like, wow, this is good. I'm going to get some more, right? The craving is set in. The clinging, more, right? Then you think about your friends, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. They've never had mangoes, right? I'm going to buy a mango and I'm going to turn them on to mangoes. You buy another mango, you go see your friends, you turn them onto the mangoes and they're like, oh, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. We love mangoes. You have become the mango bringer. You have given birth to your identity as the mango bringer, right? And so every time you go see your friends, you bring a mango and they're like, oh, cool, another mango. Until about the fifth time and they're like, what's with all the mangoes? Uh-oh, death of the mango bringer. This is dependent origination moment to moment, according to Ajahn Buddha Das's thing. That because we have a mind and body and senses and we receive sense contacts, there's the Vedana that happens. And if we're not careful, then the craving and clinging leads to us becoming the one who is clinging. And this gives us our sense of who we are. We give birth to ourselves as this self, this entity, but because it's a made-up thing and it needs continually reinforcing, it also has a tendency to die when anytime somebody doesn't support our ego. Now, I think this is a far more useful way of looking at dependent origination than the three lifetimes model. And actually, it points to, we could say, the heart of what the Buddha was getting at. Usually, the heart of what the Buddha taught is said to be the Four Noble Truths. Dukkha happens, right? Dukkha arises dependent on craving. If you don't want Dukkha, don't crave. And if you want to learn to not crave and therefore escape Dukkha, then here's eight practices you should undertake, the Eightfold Path. And this is spelled out in more detail of how it unfolds in the sense of you have a conscious mind and body that has senses that receive sense contacts and those contacts generate Vedana. Now this is all pretty much automatic. Uh, not much you can do about having a conscious mind and body that have senses. In fact, you actually work really hard to make sure that's the case, right? And you get the contacts, sometimes whether you want it or not, and they've discovered that the Vedana arises in the old brain, the reptilian structure, in about one-tenth of a second after there's a sense contact. 
And we start categorizing things as either we lean towards them or we lean against them or we ignore them. Usually called pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, but I think there's more nuances than just that. So there's this initial categorization. And if we're not careful, what follows is all the mental activity based on the sense contact and the Vedana it generated. And that leads to the craving. And as the Buddha said, dukkha depends on craving. And so if you've got the craving going, you're liable to have the clinging and eventually the dukkha. So this actually is a very important explanation in a more detailed form of the first three of the Four Noble Truths. And I think it's quite useful for practice, particularly keeping in mind that we need to pay attention to our sensory input and recognize the Vedana that's generated. The sense of leaning towards an input or pushing away from an input or ignoring an input. Because based on this, we tend to wander off into craving for it or craving for the absence of it or sometimes ignoring and being ignorant, which as we said earlier was somewhat of a problem. This leading our lives based on Vedana It's kind of a weird thing to do. The Vedana are so short-lived, and yet we run after them like crazy. It's almost like we got born, and we got an instruction manual, and then we opened it up, and it says, seek pleasure, avoid pain, live forever. And that's what we do with our lives. Basically based on these Vedana, these very brief pleasant or unpleasant mental experiences that arise based on our sensory input. And what the Buddha is saying is, get your mind, be mindful of the Vedana, get your attention in there, see what's happening, and don't get caught up in the craving. Because if you get caught in the craving, that's a supporting condition for dukkha to arise. If you don't do the craving, there's not going to be any dukkha. I think that actually one of the most important things to understand about dependent origination, and again about the Four Noble Truths, is the concept of necessary condition. I would actually say that the various links of dependent origination is a collection of necessary conditions. If there's something happening that you don't want to happen. If you can find a necessary condition for the unwanted thing and turn off the necessary condition, you can turn off the unwanted thing. If you don't want the lights on, the light switch being on is a necessary condition. You can just turn off the light switch. You don't have to unscrew all the bulbs. You don't have to cut the wires to the building. You don't have to blow up the power plant, right? You find a manipulatable, necessary condition, and you can actually prevent the arising of something you don't want to arise. doesn't give you the power to make anything you want to arise, arise. But remember, the Buddha said he was teaching just dukkha and the end of dukkha. He wasn't promising you 
unicorns or fairy wings or anything like that. Just the end of dukkha. And if you want to turn off the dukkha, you turn off a necessary condition for its arising. And dependent origination is pointing out that the manipulatable condition is craving. Turn off the craving and the dukkha can't arise. Now, I say, don't crave. <laughs> I mean, if the Buddha were sitting here himself and tell you don't crave, you'd probably still wind up craving, right? It's something we have to learn to do, and that's what the Eightfold Path is about, the practices we need to undertake. So, in one sense, this is what dependent origination really is about. It's about seeing how we get into trouble and finding the manipulatable necessary condition, craving, and turn it off by getting mindfulness between the Vedana and the craving. Now, before the Vedana, through the Vedana, we don't have anything we can manipulate. We found some necessary conditions, but you can't turn off your senses. You can't turn off your mind and body. I mean, that doesn't do any good at all. So it's really this gap between the Vedana and the craving where we want to work, and we want to work with mindfulness and see what's going on. One of the things that's very helpful for understanding many of the teachings is to try and find some of the suttas that are early. The traditional thing is that all, what, 6,000 suttas were spoken by the Buddha, and then they were collected three months after his death at the First Council of Arhats. But modern scholarship goes, mm, probably not the case. It would appear that indeed some of the suttas probably come from the period of the Buddha, maybe even that's exactly the words he used. And other suttas, eh, maybe they were composed perhaps even as late as a hundred years after the Buddha's death, as people understood the teachings and were trying to express it in order to give their understanding and uh, an aura of authority, they just put the words in the Buddha's mouth. It's a different culture. And so the putting the words in someone's mouth doesn't hold the same negative connotation that it does in this culture. This is just what you did. But there's a collection in the fifth collection, the Kudaka Nikaya, the miscellaneous collection, called the Sutta Nipata. And the Sutta Nipata contains a number of very interesting suttas. The most interesting to me is the fourth book of 16 suttas, the Athakavaga. And what's in there, for the most part, appears to be suttas from very early in the Buddha's career. We see a solitary wanderer, no fellow monks, no monasteries. The story of the Buddha's life we find in the Vinaya is that he spent the first three years after his awakening, after he had taught his five ascetics, and got them enlightened, and another 55 people enlightened. He said, everybody go different ways and spread the Dhamma for the good of humanity. And he went off by himself and spent three years as a solitary wanderer. And these suttas seem to reflect that. 
And there are another number of other hints that indicate this is probably very early material. In that collection, so this is Sutta Nipata, number, book four, Sutta 11, is what I think is the earliest sutta on dependent origination. It doesn't use the familiar terms of death, birth, becoming, clinging, craving, vedana, contact, etc. The sutta is entitled Quarrels and Disputes, and someone asks, why do quarrels and disputes arise? They arise because people find things endearing. Well, why do people find things endearing? Because they're desirable. Why do people find things desirable? Because it is experienced, this is pleasant, that is unpleasant. Where does this pleasant and unpleasant come from? Sense contacts. Where do sense contacts come from? Mind and body. Now, if you're familiar with the links of dependent origination, you can see that the dukkha of the traditional teaching is here given as quarrels and disputes. The clinging is given as being dear. The craving is given as desirable. Vedana is given as pleasant and unpleasant. Pretty close. Sense contact is exactly the same as sense contact. And mind and body is the same as mind and body. It would appear that when the Buddha started teaching dependent origination, he used slightly different words. And then over time, a different set of words was chosen. Most likely because a number of his monks were Brahmins and they would have been familiar with the Upanishad or Vedic hymn of creation in the Vedas. So the very ancient literature that the Brahmins used, there was this hymn of creation. And it talked about out of ignorance, there arise sankharas, which gives birth to consciousness, mind and body, all right, the words starting to sound familiar, the usual words of dependent origination, but with a completely different meaning behind it. So it would appear at some point the Buddha chose to use different words to describe what he was teaching. We don't know any of this for sure, but it's quite interesting to look at this and see, okay, there was an evolution at least in the description of it, and it wound up with this perhaps more familiar set of terms for at least some of the monks. And it's quite clear from looking at quarrels and disputes being dependent upon what's dear, being dependent upon what's desirable, being dependent upon pleasant and unpleasant, being dependent upon mind and contact, being dependent upon mind and body. It's nothing about multiple lifetimes. It's about Basically, how do we get into dukkha? What goes wrong here? I would say this is part of the specific teaching of dependent origination. But there's a more general teaching that is perhaps far more profound 
that seldom gets addressed. The Buddha taught dependent origination as a way of looking at the universe not as entities, but as processes. Joseph Goldstein gave a talk one time, and he said in it, you should think of yourself as a verb, not a noun. And I thought, well, that's, yeah, that's right on. That's actually very helpful. I mean, I'm a digestive process. I'm a circulatory process. I'm an endocrine process. There's all these processes in here. It's not really static. And then the more I thought about it, actually, turns out there aren't any nouns. There's just slow-moving verbs, right? And this is what the Buddha's pointing out at the deepest level of dependent origination. Look at the world as process, not as entities. There's two suttas that I'd like to share with you that point to this. The first one is the greater discourse on the destruction of craving. This comes from the middle-length discourses, and it's number 38. Thus have I heard, once the Buddha was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park. And at that time, there was a monk named Sati, the son of the fisherman, who held a pernicious view that his consciousness transmigrated from incarnation to incarnation. And some of the other monks heard this, and they went to Sati, and they said, Is this true? And he said, Yes. And they said, Oh, don't say that. You're misrepresenting the Blessed One. He teaches consciousness is dependently originated. But though they questioned and cross-questioned Sati, he wouldn't give up his pernicious view. So they went to see the Buddha, and they explained all that had happened. And the Buddha said, You, tell Sati, the Master calls. And that monk went to Sati and said, The Master calls you, Sati. And so Sati went to the Buddha and saluted and sat down at one side. And the Buddha said, Sati, is it true that you say consciousness transmigrates from incarnation to incarnation? And Sati says, Yes, Venerable Sir, as I understand the teachings of the Blessed One, this very consciousness transmigrates from incarnation to incarnation. Sati, what is consciousness? Venerable Sir, it is that that thinks and feels and experiences here and there the result of good and bad actions. Now, if somebody were to ask us what consciousness is, we might give a reply something like that. It's, it's maybe the little guy sitting behind the eyeballs that thinks and feels, and it's who's going to get the results of the karma, right? If I misbehave, I'm going to get the results. That's, it's my consciousness that's going to get it, right? Well, the Buddha's reply is interesting. He says, misguided man. When have you ever known me to teach Dhamma like that? Misguided man, haven't I told you repeatedly that consciousness is a dependently originated phenomena? Monks, do you understand the Dhamma like this monk Sati? No, venerable sir, for in many occasions you have explained consciousness to be dependently originated. And at that point, Poor Sati is sitting there with his head down and his shoulders slumping and cannot make a reply. 
And the Buddha says, it's good that you understand the Dhamma like this, that consciousness is dependently originated. But this monk Sati has stored up much demerit and he will be known by his pernicious view for a long time. And here we are, two and a half thousand years later, <laughs> talking about poor old Sati. <laughs> and then he says, I will question the monks. And he asks them some questions about consciousness. And then he says, Consciousness is reckoned dependent upon the condition that it depends on to arise. If consciousness arises dependent on the eye and forms, it's reckoned as eye consciousness. If it arises dependent upon the ear and sounds, it's ear consciousness. The nose and smell, nose consciousness, the tongue and taste, tongue consciousness, the body and textures, body consciousness, the mind and mind objects, mind consciousness. Just like a fire is reckoned dependent upon the material it's burning. If it's burning in a forest, it's a forest fire. If it's burning in a house, it's a house fire. If it's burning in cow dung, it's a cow dung fire. If it's burning in rubbish, it's a rubbish fire. So too with consciousness. It's reckoned by the, what it depends upon to come into existence. And then the Buddha starts questioning the monks in detail about dependent origination. What follows is page after page after page of some of the most tedious stuff in all of the suttas. <laughs> the suttas show signs of having been messed with. Actually, a lot of suttas show signs of having been messed with. I think what we have up to this point is perhaps an accurate, and I put it in quotes, representation of the discourse to Sati or in response to Sati's misguided view. And then the questions start out and it, well, somebody later on decided to really elaborate the questions. And it goes into dependent origination in the forward order and the reverse order and the arising forward and the arising and the ceasing forward and on and on and on and on and Eventually, though, it gets to the point. The Buddha says to the monks, knowing and seeing in this way, that is, understanding dependent origination, would you run back to the past wondering, was I? Was I not? What was I? Being what? What did I become? No, venerable sir. Knowing and seeing in this way, would you run to the future wondering, Will I be? Won't I be? What will I be? Being what? What will I become? No, venerable sir. Knowing and seeing in this way, in terms of dependent origination, would you be inwardly perplexed about the present, wondering, am I? Am I not? What am I? What is this being? Where has it come from? What will happen to it? No, venerable sir. Monks, are you saying this because I'm your teacher? No, venerable <laughs> sir. Are you saying this from your own experience? Yes, venerable sir. Good monks, it is good that you know this from your own experience. The Buddha is countering Sati's misguided view of his transmigrating consciousness to say, look at this entity 
and see it is a dependently originated phenomena. That it arises due to causes and conditions. It sticks around as long as there are supporting conditions. And eventually it ceases. And there's no entity to be found. If you can look at the world in terms of things arising dependent upon other things, then the whole notion of entities begins to disappear. The notion of nouns begins to drop away and you see that there are verbs. Dependent origination in its most profound thing is seeing that all that there is is streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. Out of ignorance, we take these interactions of streams of dependently originated phenomena and we call it clock, platform, mat, water glass, me, right? But it's just streams of dependently originated phenomena. It's dead dinosaurs and rainwater, right? Okay, it's not a water glass. It's sunlight and plants that got eaten by the dinosaurs before they died and then it was you know, pumped out as petroleum and made into a glass and snow fell in the Sierra and it came down here. It's a lot more complex than a glass of water. This platform, nice, solid, former trees. Can you look at this platform and see the trees? Can you look at this platform and see the sun shining and the rain coming down and the minerals in the ground? and the birds in the trees, and the insects the birds are eating, and the whole ecosystem that the trees grew up in, and the woodsman going and chopping them down, and the lumber mill converting them into this, and somebody buying this stuff and bringing it in here, and now it's a platform. And if there's a flood, it's gonna be a raft. And someday it's gonna be firewood, and it's going to be turned into carbon dioxide that the trees are going to breathe in. Mother Nature is just running a big recycling project. And we're part of the recyclables. Okay? This is the deeper teaching of dependent origination. Seeing that everything arises due to other things. Nothing stands independently. There's a collection of suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses or thematic discourses. It is called the Nidana Samyutta. It's book 12 of that collection. And it's about 95 suttas on dependent origination, on Paticca Samuppada. And there's some really brilliant teaching in there. The sutta that I find the most profound in that collection and maybe in the whole of the canon is the Kachyana Gota Sutta. Thus have I heard, once the Buddha was living at Savati 
And there the venerable Kachyana Gota approached the Blessed One, saluted him, sat down at one side, and said, Venerable Sir, it is said, right view, right view. In what way is there right view? Okay, so the first thing to recognize, this is not some monk. This is the venerable Katyana Gota. This is someone who has some standing in the community. This is someone who's going to get an advanced teaching, right? And so he wants to know, in what way is there right view? Katyana. For the most part, this world depends upon a duality, upon the concept of it is and the concept of it is not. But one who sees the arising of the world as it actually is with correct wisdom doesn't think in terms of it is not. And one who sees the disappearance of the world as it actually is with correct wisdom doesn't think in terms of it is. This world, Katyana, is caught up in views and opinions and ideas. One with correct wisdom doesn't get caught up in views and opinions and ideas. One with correct wisdom does not take a stand about myself, my Atta. Now, this is really quite interesting. Sometimes we find the Buddha talking about selves. When you're doing the metta practice, he describes doing it and he says you should be sending the metta to all as to yourself. Right? So this is what we call relative reality. Me and you, this is my glass of water, that's Gil's glass of water. These are my socks, don't you put them on, right? Okay. And sometimes the Buddha talked about not-self. He says, look at the five aggregates. Your body's not yourself. Your Vedana's not yourself. Your perceptions are not yourself. Your mental activity's not yourself. Even your consciousness is not yourself. So now he's talking in terms of not-self. But in this deepest teaching... He says with one right, who has right view, does not take a stand about myself. Now, the self, the atta, more than anything else corresponds to the soul. You know, the essence of me that hopefully someday is going to be eternally happy. Not eternally happy just yet. Sometimes there's a little sadness in here, but... It's going to stick around and someday we're going to get it right and I'm going to be eternally happy. And the Buddha doesn't say there is one and there isn't one. He says, one with right view does not take a stand about my soul. He then follows that by saying something that I always found a little cryptic. One with right view sees that whenever there's an arising... It's only dukkha arising. And whenever there's a ceasing, it's only dukkha ceasing. In this way, one abides independent, not relying on anyone else. Whenever there's a rising, it's only dukkha arising. 
I didn't get that. I mean, there were those cupcakes. They were not dukkha. There was nothing about them that was dukkha. They were really good. Why is that said to be dukkha? Well, we tend to want to translate dukkha as suffering, and that's too narrow. Better is unsatisfactory. But when it comes to cut cakes, no, those cupcakes were definitely satisfactory, right? So what's going on here? Um, I actually eventually realized that dukkha has the connotation of not a source of lasting satisfaction. So as good as those cupcakes were, they weren't a source of lasting satisfaction. I know because I ate it and it was gone, right? So no matter how good it is, it's not a source of lasting satisfaction. And when something ceases, no matter how precious it was to you, it's not a source of lasting satisfaction that's ceasing, right? So with one with right view, understands this about the arising and passing. All that arises can't give you lasting happiness. And all that ceases, it's just stuff that can't give you lasting happiness. Kachyana. Everything exists. This is one extreme. Nothing exists. This is the opposite extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, a Tathagata teaches the Dhamma via the middle. With this as necessary condition, that arises. With the ceasing of this necessary condition, that ceases. This is the essence of what the Buddha was teaching. This, this, that conditionality, this explanation of necessary conditions. Seeing that things arise dependent on other things. Everything from the glass of water to me. It all arises dependent not on just one other thing, but lots of other things. This being California, I'm sure many of you are familiar with John Muir, the great naturalist from the early 20th century. My favorite thing he said was, you can't go into the wilderness and pick up any piece of it without finding attached to everything else. This is exactly what the Buddha was saying. It's not that it's all interconnected, but it's certainly all interrelated and everything is dependent on other things. This arises dependent on that. And with the ceasing of this, that also ceases. Okay? He's giving us a view of the world that is highly process-oriented. If you can get out of looking at fixed entities, that is, it is or it is not, and look at the processes, you'll get a much deeper understanding of what's going on. You can actually see that what arises is not going to give you lasting satisfaction. And what ceases, that too was not going to give you lasting satisfaction. It's all in flux because it's all process. And furthermore, the key 
is to find the necessary conditions for the things you don't want to have happen and turn off the necessary conditions. If it's the lights, turn off the light switch. If it's dukkha, turn off the craving. So, the takeaways from this talk. Dependent origination is about understanding how dukkha arises. There are minds and bodies that are conscious, that have senses, that get sense contacts, that generate Vedana. Be mindful and get your attention in there between the Vedana and the optional onset of craving. If you're mindful enough, you can prevent the arising of craving. If you prevent the arising of craving, you've turned off the necessary condition for the arising of dukkha. That's the number one teaching about dependent origination. Number two is the way out sort of permanently, and that's to uproot ignorance. The getting in there between the Vedana and the craving is an every sense contact thing. It's a lot of work because you get a lot of sense contacts every day. How many sense contacts in a day do you get? Uh, I don't even know that number and I'm a mathematician, right? So better to uproot the ignorance. The ignoring the fact that, well, everything is dependent on other things, that nothing stands alone, that because it's all process, it's changing, Anicca. Because it's all changing, nothing gives lasting satisfaction, Dukkha. And because everything depends on other things, there are no entities to be found, Anatta, the three characteristics of all phenomena. This is what dependent origination is all about. This is the heart of the Dharma. Maybe we should sit for a minute.